guys, what an awesome conversation we've got coming your way today on the show. Listen, we've got some soccer discussion. I know it's been a hot topic. People wanted to hear about this for a long time. So I'm bringing on a former collegiate soccer player. We're going to be talking about his training, his mindset, and everything in between on what it took to play at that level. We're also going to be having a second part of the show because our same guest who played collegiate soccer is from the South. He's got some SEC homerism is what I call it, but he has some facts to back it up. He's going to talk about the SEC culture with football and everything. You're going to love that conversation as well. It's amazing. You don't want to miss this episode of the Game Time Guru. So what time is it? Game Time This is the Game Time Guru podcast where I interview sports figures from all over the world to help deliver a panoramic view on sports. So whether you're a former athlete, one of the crazies, or simply a casual sports fan, this is the perfect show for you as we peel back the curtains and learn from our guests every single week. I'm your host, Shane Larson, and I'm helping you see sports through a different lens. What's up, everybody? Welcome out to another episode of the Game Time Guru Podcast. I am your host, Shane Larson. want to give a shout-out to all the listeners so far in, in, in the show who have jumped on board from day one, or if this is your first time listening, awesome. Welcome aboard. We'd like to have you here. Just check today, the day of this recording, and we're in 111 countries, not 109. So we continue to grow uh, the podcast, all 50 states, 111 countries, and that's thanks in large part to everybody who has listened and supported, maybe shared the episodes, liked a post on social media, something. Uh, thankful for all of you guys for jumping on and, and helping. What can really help me out, I have a, a goal by the end of this year. So if you're listening to this podcast and you have an iPhone, which a lot of people do, and you haven't left me a review on Apple Podcasts, please do so. Um, I would love to get to 250 reviews by the end of 2022. The more reviews we get, the more people listen. That's how That's how Apple's algorithms work. I don't hide that from anybody. That's kind of the secret of all these podcasters out there, but I try to be as transparent as possible. If you can give me more reviews, the more it can get pushed out to other people. So with that being said, as you guys heard in the introduction, we're going to be bringing on a guest today. We're talking about college athletics, specifically soccer. I know that's been a big topic that people have reached out to me. I've had three people in the last month reach out to me, ask me, when are you going to talk about soccer? We haven't had any soccer discussions on here, so that's going to be huge, as well as SEC football and culture. Um, and I'm bringing on a guest whom I met almost a year ago. And that's kind of how we started talking was just chatting college sports. He hated on Ohio state, loved it. Totally understand why now that I've gotten to know him a little bit better. His name's Addison Watson. Addison, thanks so much for joining the show, man. Yes, Shane. Thanks for having me on, man. I'm excited to talk a little ball today. Let's get it. Let's get it. So Addison, let's, let's uh, rewind the clock and talk about your athletic career as, as you yourself, the athlete, um, talk about, you know, your upbringing in sports and like what, what sports you competed in going in through, I guess the, if you want to call it little league to middle school to high school ranks, what were you, you know, what was sports like for you growing up? Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing that anyone who hears this podcast is going to hear is that I'm from the South. So I was born and raised in Mississippi. Um, I grew up playing soccer, basketball, um, baseball, I really sucked at baseball. So I ended up going, gravitating a little bit more toward like basketball because I am taller. I'm Shane, I'm about your height, 6'3 ish. Um, but soccer really was my natural development. And so I started playing just in recreational leagues when I was a kid. And then as I got into middle school, I realized, you know, I was, I was pretty good. Like I was getting better. And then I got to high school and I realized I had an opportunity to really focus one sport in. 
and kind of hone that skill. So I started playing a uh, goalkeeper, which was my position in college. And I played, I really started focusing on goalkeeper about 13 or 14. And, um, and it just took off from there. I got, you know, there's lucky breaks along the way. There's a lot of hard work that goes into it, but um, that's the short of it. Grew up in Mississippi. And then for college, I went to Missouri State University with a home of the bears. That's where Bobby Petrino is now. He coaches football there. Um, small, small little nerd fact for all your listeners, but uh, Missouri State's a division one school uh, for every sport. Uh, for football, they're one double A, but soccer was just division one. Uh, really loved my experience there. And then when it was time to hang them up, I was ready to hang them up and, and kind of get started beyond that. But I did a lot of coaching while I was in college and after college, do a lot of mentorship to this day with young and up and coming athletes and really just want to see that next generation of athletes come in a little more prepared than I did. There's a lot of stuff that goes on with NCAA soccer that people just aren't aware of uh, from scholarship limits to practice times and regulations. There's, there's a lot of stuff people just don't know. Um, I'm a lawyer now, so I will focus a little bit on like the regulation side of things and point out the difficulties that that can present, especially if you're going to a non-revenue sport like soccer. Yo, no, that's super interesting. So I'm going to pick some of this apart real quick. You mentioned, you know, 14 ish years old is kind of when you started honing in, um, when you were in high school and you realized, okay, I want to kind of hone in on this particular sport, this particular position, uh, did that change your training at all? And what kind of training were you doing outside of just practicing? Did you hit the weight room? Were you doing skills and agility? Kind of talk to us about these these things that you had to do to prepare to get yourself to a level where you could compete at the next level and, and the division one level at that. Um, so that these younger athletes kind of understand it. Cause Addison, as a coach myself for basketball, there's a lot of 16, 17 year old kids out here that I'm coaching that are going into their junior senior years of high school. And they haven't quite got it yet. As far as like yep. what it's going to take, like, you know, an hour getting shots up, you know, three or four days a week, is not going to get it done. Like that's going to, that's a bare minimum. Maybe. So I want to know what you, you were doing, what your uh, workout routine kind of consisted of once you started honing in on soccer. Yeah, so soccer is not one of the sports like football or baseball where you just your goal is to get just larger and put on mass, right? Like soccer is a little more refined of a skill set, at least in my opinion. So sophomore year, you know, I'm 6'3", 145 pounds soaking wet, which is just slender as it gets, which is, you know, which is fine. But I got a gym membership to a place that was 24 seven in uh, Starkville, Mississippi. And I would go after school pretty much every single day, um, seven days a week. And that's just, it was my, uh, it was one of my escapes in order to kind of like blow off steam. I really did enjoy doing it. And I would do that in addition to uh, practices. So played high school ball. When you play high school ball, it's like, we didn't lift as a team ever. We didn't really have the facilities for it, to be honest with you. Um, but then also on top of that, I played travel ball. And from a rural state like Idaho, Mississippi, Alabama, all these states that don't have just like an epicenter for soccer, like a Denver or Atlanta, right? You're working and you have to work a little bit extra hard to get seen. So for example, I lived in a small town, Starkville, Mississippi, population little under 25,000, probably less back then. Jeez. But to really play on like a competitive team, I had to drive two hours to our capital Jackson um, each way. And I did that twice a week, sometimes three times a week. I started doing it with friends that would still play soccer, but they started teetering off as we got into high school and to the point where it was just me, you know, 15 and a half learner's permit, just me jetting down there and back, you know, twice a week. And it was, it's not easy, but it's also just a mindset you have to have. Like 
I, I did okay in high school. It's not like I really tried. I slept in math class and it really doesn't pay off now, but, um, but that was also another mistake along the way was not focusing on the academic side. So for soccer, I mean, it was getting in the weight room. It was explosive movements, working on squat jumps. Um, there's tons of YouTube videos. Anybody who's my age, your age or younger really can develop their own workout routine just from watching YouTube videos. It's pretty simple. You go on, you can find anything under the sun you want. So that's what I did. You know, I, I just lived with my mom, so it wasn't like she was out lifting all the time. So I would go to the gym. I would look up stuff while I was in the gym. People probably saw and giggled, and that's fine. But um, at the end of the day, when I came to school, I was one of the strongest and fastest kids on my team. And that's a huge benefit, even as the goalkeeper. I think that's awesome. No, that's that's super cool because I don't want people think like there are so many advantages to technology these days. The, everybody's got a smartphone, it seems like, or access to some sort of internet somewhere, whether it's the school or somewhere, right? Everyone's got Wi-Fi somewhere. It feels like you guys have access to this stuff. So don't give me any excuses that you don't have a trainer or this or that. Like you've got access to a lot of information and uh, you can build your own workout program like Addison was saying. Now, Here's another question I have on the goalkeeping side of things. So when I lived in Brazil, I served a church mission down in Brazil for two years back in 2008 to 2010. And when I was there, obviously, Brazil, it's a madhouse for soccer. It's a whole different way, way of life. And I'm sure the culture there, similar to what we're going to talk about a little bit later with the SEC culture for football, like fo soccer down there was unbelievable. It, it's completely different. Like people are like, well, that's kind of like football here in the United States. No, it's, it's a completely different animal in Brazil, even more so than football. In my opinion, like American football, it's just wild. Everything is soccer. They live, breathe it. everything at their dinners, their prayers are around their soccer teams. I mean, they pray for their teams all the time. It's wild to me. So when I was down there though, I remember going to the local parks and they had some goalkeepers that were there and they were doing some, uh, they have like, they have like clubs that kind of feed their feeder clubs into their pro teams. Um, and so the younger kids that are actually super talented, uh, can, can make these clubs and such. Anyway, there was like four goalkeepers and they were, uh, on a, it was almost, it was a volleyball pit, but they were doing goalkeeping training and some of the stuff they were doing, like laying out for certain things. I was watching some of their drills. We stayed there for about an hour just watching them because it's wild. And man, they were, they were getting after it with, uh, their instincts, their instinctual, like training had to be on point, like change direction. They had to be shifting their feet one way and then they you know, kick the ball this way. They had to lay out. There was a certain way they had to land. So I want to know, I, I became intrigued with the goalkeeping side of things. So as you're talking, I kind of want to know goalkeeping specific when you did actual skill specific drills. I mean, you've already talked about lifting weights and all that stuff. What were those like for you as a goalkeeper? If you really want to, because some people think you can just like jump and like hit the ball out, but there are some things you have to train on that. It's not as easy as it sounds. So I guess talk to us about your skill specific training. And it's funny you mentioned that Shane, because 90% of the position is footwork. A lot of people say that about like the quarterback position too, right? Like a lot of it hampers on the footwork. You don't see that. What you see is the guy who goes, a soccer goal is eight feet high by 24 feet wide. That's a lot of area to cover, right? Like that's just a lot. And so using your legs and taking off at the last minute possible is your biggest advantage. And so speed drills, look at ladders. I mean, you're talking about two feet in, two feet out. You're talking about diagonal through, it's one one leg it hops through that kind of stuff so it's a lot of just the footwork and being able to be coordinated and quick with your feet i think that's probably the number one thing that i did high school college and more so in college um our goalkeeping coach was about five foot seven and he was still a very good goalkeeper back in the day 
And he's still a great coach now. He coaches at one of the top programs uh, for college soccer, Akron. And um, and anyway, that was like the main thing that we did was, you know, it'd be running out and be breaking down in your stance, shuffling around cones and then ball to the hands. You know, same thing and doing that 10 times over. And it was it was really helpful to work on that end of goalkeeping. But also the second piece, other than just the footwork, is general, you know, being able to be explosive and keep that hand-eye coordination. Like you said, if you do it on a volleyball pit, I would heck, I would have loved to do it on a volleyball <laughs> pit. Instead, we had we had mm, I love my alma mater. We had really rough turf my first year I was there. <laughs> it was before we got the soccer specific field and it freezes in Missouri. And so the turf freezes too. And it just feels like you're just landing on glass and ice, man. It's terrible. But um, that's that's a lot of it. It's the footwork aspect. It's the explosive movements in your quads and in your calves. And that's true for pretty much any position on the soccer field. You've got to be able to change directions at light speed. The field is 80 yards wide by 120 yards. It's bigger than a football field by a long shot. And people don't necessarily realize how big a field is until you're there. Um, so you've really got to train those muscles and, and be ready at a moment's notice. Like as a goalkeeper, you're either the re you're a lot of times you find yourself as the reason your team lost or the reason your team didn't lose. Like that's yeah. the opportunity. There's 90 minutes in a game. You could sit there idle for 89 minutes and that one little lapse where, you know, you messed up your footwork or you tripped over yourself, like that can cause a goal and lose you the other 89 minutes of the game. So just being able to have that footwork and that explosive movement is so key. That's uh, there's so many good points here. I want to talk about the mental aspect of being a goalie and, and the pressures that come along with that, because, you know, you'll see the Ronaldo's out there, the Messi's out there that, that are, that are the, the highlight reels. Right. But when they are the highlight reels, the other end of that highlight reel is typically the goalie. And so, it, yeah, there's a lot of good stuff that comes from goalies too. Like you get to see some of the coolest saves, but there, it seems like the hate is just as hard as, as the love. Um, did you ever experience the pressures? And if so, what uh, advice would you give to the younger athletes that might be aspiring goalkeepers? Uh, did you ever watch Ted Lasso? I don't know. It's yes. A, okay, good. So he always talks about, he says that the goldfish is the happiest animal because what, like that, the eight second or 10 second memory, it's a hundred percent the same thing as a goalkeeper because right. Like you can, like I said, you can sit there and do nothing in each half, let's just say 45 minutes. Right. So in the 45th minute, you haven't done anything. And then boom, there's a breakaway. You've got a Ronaldo or somebody running at you. He's, the mindset has to be a, a shift, right? Like there's instances where you're supposed to execute, like you're supposed to make the save, you're supposed to do the thing correctly. And then there's other instances where it's like, man, if you pull that off, like that's awesome. If you have Ronaldo running straight down the middle at you and nobody around him and it's you and him, you're not expected to make that save, right? That takes a lot of pressure off of you as a goalkeeper in a lot of ways. Same thing with penalty kicks. Someone lines up 12 yards out and they're just standing there. They know where they're going to go. They know exactly where they're going to put it. And then you are the one that's sitting there waiting to see like, all right, where's this ball going? Right? So you have no pressure. You have to change that mindset and think like, how can I turn this into my advantage? And it's like that anytime you step onto the field, right? Like just making that mindset shift. If you make a mistake in a game, it usually is going to hurt your team a lot. It's going to cost your team. So it's being able to be consistent and be confident in yourself because if you were if you're amazing and you pull off unbelievable saves but you don't make the routine ones, you're not going to be a good goalkeeper. 
you've got to get super consistent. It's like a basketball player, right? Like if you are hitting threes, like behind the head, behind your back and stuff, like that's great. But you're shooting 40% from the free throw line and you're not Shaq, like you're not doing it right, man. You got to get yeah. down. You got to get the super basics of, all right, someone ripped the shot at me. Am I catching it? Am I going to have to push it wide of the post? Once you get that very basic level down, then you can expand and try to come out and take down the Ronaldos of the game and really try to make that shift. But for the mindset piece, it's all about figuring out how to make things end up in your favor. So consistency is the first piece. And then once you become consistent, it builds off that confidence. And then you can take that confidence and explode it into a whole nother level. That's crazy. And I'm glad you shared that. That's that's. Man, I can't even imagine. Um, everybody used to make fun of goalkeepers when I was in high school because our <laughs> soccer team was atrocious, by the way. And our, I mean, I'm, I'm talking they won one game, I believe, my senior year. They went from winning the state championship my freshman year, school split. Um, and yeah, that naturally took all the soccer players to a different school. And I'm not I'm not kidding you. Like they had to like these kids would have been struggling to make JV. And I apologize for those who were listening to this that were on those teams. They were <laughs> atrocious. And so we used to like we were like, dude, you're giving up. I'm not joking. That's in nine goals in a game. Like, and that was pretty consistent. I'm like, that's not normal for soccer. Um, you're not giving up nine to, to 12 goals in a game sometimes like, and doing that multiple times in a season. Like it doesn't normally happen. You know, you got scores of eight to one, uh, nine to two, seven, zero. Like that doesn't happen very often. Our team was like that. So we used to make fun of the goalkeepers, but here's the thing. No one wants to stand in front of a ball when somebody actually knows how to kick a ball. So here's the other thing I've done this and they're like, Oh, well they got big padded gloves. Okay. Um, have you ever been, you know, and then sometimes they're like, well, if they wear a cup, they shouldn't have to worry about that either. If they're a guy, well, that also isn't necessarily true. In my opinion, I've, I've, I've boxed and I've also worn a cup and even getting hit low with a cup on actually doesn't, it hurts still. You know what I mean? I don't know how people think that it doesn't hurt. I'm like, it, it, there's just things there that hurt. So have you ever taken a ball to a face? Have you ever taken a ball to the midsection? Anything like, has there been a, a time where you've taken the, the ball to the face and how did you, uh, How'd you react there? Because some people don't realize how tough it can be when a ball's flying straight at your face, 70 to 90 miles an hour. It feels like regularly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> look, you're trying to get your hands behind the ball because like you said, like that's, that's where your protection is, right? Like you got three to five millimeters of like padded gloves. So big, thick padded gloves really breaks down to three to five millimeters. And like, <laughs> it ain't much, but it's something, right? Um, I remember my freshman year in college, I was, there was a guy who was running straight down the middle and our defenders just missed him. Like it was part of practice and it was how the drill was designed so that you'd get set up one-on-one. Well, I come out and, you know, I sweep the ball. The job, whenever you come out one-on-one with a striker is to kind of put the ball in your belly button when you slide. That way I've got three feet this way and three feet that way where I can cover most of the goal. So you put the ball in your belly button and then you swoop your hands in and kind of hold the ball. Well, when you do that, you can't defend yourself. So I, I got kicked in the nose plenty. I got kicked in the face. Uh, Places where cups would normally protect all the time. I mean, it just, you take a beating in a lot of ways, but it makes you a lot tougher. And part of that is like, if you are at, it doesn't matter what level, if you're at a JUCO, if you're at um, NCAA division one, two, three, NAI, if you're a goalkeeper, you're diving and you're hitting the ground probably hundreds, if not a thousand times in each practice. And you don't brace yourself when you hit the ground. You know, you're jumping, you're trying just to get a fingertip on the ball and like you're taught not to brace yourself. So you're hitting, you're hitting your shoulder on the backside, you're hitting your hips, you're hitting all kinds of stuff on that turf. So really it builds up a lot. And now if I were to try to go play in goal, I wouldn't be able to walk tomorrow, but 
in college, like someone could want, someone could run up to me and hit me as hard as they want. And it wouldn't bother me. Cause like, you're just built like that, right? Like an MMA fighter who gets decked in the face and gets the cauliflower ears, like you're built up for it. And so while I'm no MMA fighter, like that's not the case, but <laughs> you still, you build on that layer and your body responds to it and your body's going to protect you. So if you get kicked in the face a bunch, you're going to start feeling it less. And it's just part of the adaptation. And um, while the goal is not to get kicked in the face, it still happens. Yo, dude, that's crazy. I hope people see this. Like there is a conversation to be had about soccer players and their toughness. And I've always said, like, I always was one of those guys. I was a boxer, football player, and a basketball player my whole life. And I always made fun of the soccer players until I saw what soccer was really like in Brazil. I gained a whole new respect for them. And then talking to you obviously is, is kind of solidifying that point um, where they're not, they're not everything you see on TV where they flop and they sit there and try to get the other person a red card. Like it's not yeah. that's the, for the theatrics. No, there it's, there's a big physicality aspect to the, uh, to the sport itself. And what you were just saying right there is what kind of what I want to get into in just a second. I want to ask about the transition to college sure. athletics, high school to college. Um, I try to tell some of these athletes, at least for the basketball side of things, even at the Juco level, there is a pretty big difference, especially now compared to even just three years ago because of the transfer portal. Uh, junior colleges are getting way more talent now than they ever did because it's trickling down. And it kind of goes into what you were saying earlier, scholarships. Like there's only an X amount of scholarships that can be handed out at certain levels. And so Division One guys are recruiting certain players. And so if you were kind of on the cusp of being Division One or whatever it may be, you might be trickling down for a year or two and and utilizing that time to get better. And then maybe you'll get your scholarship at the Division One level later. Transfer portals change a lot of things. Anyway, that means, though, the, the transition to college athletics typically is kind of a tough one with the speed and the and, and so, so forth. But I want to hear from you from the soccer aspect. What was the biggest transition from high school to, to collegiate soccer? So it, it's really going to be a mindset shift, right? Like when you're in high school, you're used to being like you're you're pretty much like big man on campus. Like you are expected to be the best player on your team and really be the guy who like brings it home. And sometimes like you might be able to slack and practice a little bit, right? Like I, I'm a different person now than I was in high school. I was a little more arrogant back then because I hadn't been to freshman year yet, right? Like you're in, you're in, you're in, in your senior year of high school and you're used to being like the guy or the girl on the team that has it together. Like it looks like you may not work as hard at practice sometimes. And that might be true, but when you get on a college campus, like, Nobody cares what you did in high school. That's awesome. You did what? You won your state championship? All right, cool. No one cares. And then it's from then on out, it's about putting in the work and being that person who's going to do more than the other guy that's next to you. Because once you get onto a place where you're actually fighting for the depth chart, like that's real. You can you can choose to be the person that's comfortable like coasting and you're not going to really make anything of yourself. You may never even play a game in college. And some people are okay with that and that's fine. But like, for the elite athletes, you never see somebody that says like, oh, I don't want to put in that extra time. I don't want to put in that work. So really the biggest piece is going to be a mental shift and determining like, hey, instead of doing that thing that I was planning to do that seemed like a little more fun, maybe I'm going to go run a few laps, get ready for the fitness test, like that kind of stuff. The mentality shift is so important. Now there's there's a physical aspect and like continuing to develop those skills because I talked a lot about like developing that consistency first. Developing the consistency is what you do in really like high school, middle school, and even in college to a, a lesser extent, but you start to develop that extraordinary ability in college. 
And that's where it separates. You know, it goes from the whole point of like 5% of high school students becoming college athletes. I don't even know what the statistic is. But beyond that, like that's already a very select group. So to stand out above that, you have to be that much better. And what is it? Maybe like 2% ever go pro? What's the NCAA yeah, commercial it, with Jerry? It, it, yeah, it's, I think it's less than that. I think it's one. Yeah. Like one and percenters. It, yeah. And we're talking about soccer, a sport that doesn't have a 53-man roster in the pros, right? Like you're not, you're not getting onto a 53-man roster and getting paid like buku bucks just to hang out or even practice squad. Like practice squad players make bank. Like yeah, people they do. don't realize that in football. But you've got you've got to make a you just have to make a determination like how much you're willing to sacrifice. People say in high school, like, oh, I want it. This is what I want. Like, I want to be pro. I want to be in the NFL. I want to be in the NBA. I want to be in the MLS. But like, if you don't make that mindset shift, you're just not going to make it. It's just how it is. Like, you can have all the talent in the world, but if you don't make that adaptation from high school to to the college level, like, you're not going to go pro in soccer, especially. Ah, that's big. The mindset, it, it, people always hear, they're like, oh, that's so cliche. I don't want to hear about the mindset, but like they don't understand, I guess, like really how much that's going to gonna change. Because when you get to college, there is a, I mean, you've got classes you got to go to. You're now on your own. Mommy and daddy can't help you. You got to, but like, and then like you said, the athleticism requirements of it, like the athletic requirement, you've got to be able to stay and compete at a high level. So you're having to like sacrifice. You can't go out to the parties all the time. You've got to be able to get up in the morning at five o'clock sometimes and maybe do this instead of that. And for those who haven't developed those habits, it might be a little bit more difficult for them. And uh, I, I just hope people like rewind that little segment of yours right there and, and listen to it again about the mindset requirements. If you're really wanting to get to that next level, because sure, you might be athletic enough to play skilled enough to play. That's not a question. That's why they got you there um to the to your college most likely they're probably seeing that but if you're on the right me, mindset it can buckle Go ahead. yeah i, I want to jump in on one thing shane because like right before we were talking about this this goes to the mindset piece but you were talking about like your high school team getting beat like 8-0 and 9-0 like that doesn't normally happen right like i went division one and in high school we did get beat 7-0 sometimes like that happened that was real and my team was on the losing end of it like it sucked um i'll never forget so my freshman year we lost a playoff game eight to zero to the eventual state champions. One, two of the guys went pro, like they were phenomenal. But at the time, like I was a shrimpy little freshman kid and I was like, wow, I'm getting racked right now. Like this sucks. <laughs> and like, I was sick. I was playing. It was like 103 fever. Like one of my defenders was like throwing up sick. Like it was not fun, but we did it. And that starts to build that mentality. Like you're out there getting it handed to you, but you got to stay out there and play because you're still one of the elite players on the team. Like, you don't get to make that decision. You're you've got 10 people on the field relying on you. And if you're not there, like that sets a bad precedent. So first year, freshman year, we lost 8-0. Sophomore year, we lost 4-0. Junior year, we lost 2-0. And then senior year, we won the state championship. So like hey. you're cutting, you're cutting it down. And just because you get defeated in one season and you get absolutely slacked in a game, like that's not going to define you. You have to have that short memory and just be able to be like, all right. We lost that year and it sucked, but like, I'm going to do better next year. And you can keep going back to that same. Well, that was kind of my mantra whenever I was coming up. All right. We cut the, we cut the deficit. Like at first it was a joke. Cause it was like, Oh, we lost by eight that first year. And then second year we lost by four high. That's funny. And then we lost by two and it was like, all right, like we're getting competitive. And then senior year we won one Oh in the state final. Like it's just, it's a mindset thing. And young kids sometimes just don't understand that. And it, it's difficult because not everyone who's young has that mentor that's able to tell them like, hey, man, you've got to have this certain mindset shift. It's not just about like 
your last game isn't the most important. It's about building that foundation and being able to grow and make sure that your skills are developing, even when your team does get busted. Yo, it's kind of interesting hearing you say that because about two or three years ago, Trevor Moad was on my show. Trevor was uh, the mental consultant for Russell Wilson. For his, he was a mental consultant coach, and he just passed away from cancer. Younger dude, but he wrote a book called It Takes What It Takes, and it was about the neutral mindset, neutral thinking, and especially for athletes. He's specific to you know athletics, and um, he was sharing some of that. And it sounds very similar to what you were saying. You know, it's not like you have to you have to accept what happened eight zero for you guys. Okay, you have to accept or seven zero, whatever. You have to accept that, but it's also like you're not thinking too far into the future, but you are accepting that and understanding. Okay, what can we learn from it? And we go right now, and you have to develop that. It's almost like a you have to condition your mind to be that way. Uh, that's why Russell Wilson, if you ever hear him talk in, in the NFL, he he talks about it. He, I mean, he partnered with Trevor Mowat. He has a whole entire company with him, and it's he's big on neutral thinking and just getting some call it the next play mentality. But it's not even that. It's just like accepting what happened and acknowledging what happened, learning from it and applying those specific principles to the current moment, not thinking about what the future is. And then once you do that, you, ex you acknowledge that and accept it, go to the current moment and so forth. Um, you throw an interception. Okay. I threw a pick. It's not like, not like just forget about it, but I acknowledge that I threw an interception. What do I apply here? What read do I make? Boom. And you move forward. Um, it's kind of interesting hearing you say that because it applies specifically to what he had said on the show. You know, Addison, as we, you heard you say all that. I want to know what the biggest life lesson was for you in your soccer days, whether it be a player, coach, mentor, even up until now. But what was the biggest life lesson that soccer uh, has taught you so far in your life? Um, I would say it gave me work ethic that's unmatched for what I was prepared for. When I went into college, it was, um, you know, I, I didn't always agree with my coaching staff. Like that's that's going to happen. Like you may get sold on one vision during a recruitment. That's not exactly how it pans out. You might get a coaching change or something goofy that happens in there. Like those are real world things. But the only thing that you can control is what you do on a day in and day out basis. But coming from high school, you know, I was I was fortunate to get what I got um, going to a division one school like that was a stroke of luck. It was really a division one school. They were the one, only one who made a real substantive offer. Um, the second school was just like, oh, like you can come to a campus and like try out. And then the other offer was from a JUCO school that was local and was going to pay money. And that was cool. But being able to make that that sacrifice, you know, you have to make that pay off because you're, you're always trading something in life and especially in sports. Like, all right, if I go to the JUCO, I'm going to get more money. I'm going to get more playing time but I'm not going to get seen as much. And it might be a less rigorous schedule than what I would get at like a division one school. And so once you go to that school, you just have to be ready to work. Like you just have to be ready to put in the hours and put in the work. I mean, there's regulations about how much you can actually practice during the week. And that's great. But the one thing they don't limit is what you do on your own, right? It's all coach directed stuff. Is a coach there? Are you required to be there? But optional stuff and things you do on your own is never regulated. You can go out and ball out as much as you want. If you shoot free throws for 10 hours a night, the NCAA can't come knocking. But if the coach tells you you got to shoot three hours of free throws after practice, the NCAA can penalize your team. So the one thing that can't be controlled is your work ethic and how you go and put in that extra work. And after hours, during the day, between classes like we did with weights, like it's just, it's all up to you. You can make what you want of it. I'm so glad you said that. Literally had a, a conversation this weekend. We were at a basketball tournament covering the tournament and a junior college coach who was on my show was there and I just chatting with him about his workouts because season's coming. So yeah, everyone's getting to campus. And I was like, oh, so like you guys got, you start your off season stuff. He goes, well, 
I can't be part of it, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, oh, dude, yeah. So we were talking about that whole conversation about are these kids motivated? And he's like, we're about to see if they're motivated because I can't do anything <laughs> about it. And he was saying my hands are tied sort of and because it's a lot different than when I played and he was doing the whole conversation. But it's true. So glad you just said that because it, it's applicable to all sports. You got to put the work in and uh, you're going to develop that work ethic if you allow yourself to do so. You know what I mean? I think that's super cool. A whole conversation for a different day in regards to soccer, though, but I'm going to put this as a cliffhanger for one of these days. Why male soccer is not as big in the United States as women's soccer, but it's big across the world. Like, what do we got to do? You know what? No, I'm going to throw the question at you. I'm going to give you two minutes to answer this before we break into the SEC conversation. What do we need to do in this country to make men's soccer a dominant sport like it is across the entire globe? Or is that even possible? Well, Shane, two answers. One, if we can't go back 150 years and start a league when everyone else started it, if we can't do that, which I don't think we can, um, the second option is to truly treat soccer like a capitalist sport. And what I say when I mean that, and this is a huge topic. Um, I've done research papers on it and stuff for college because I'm really, I'm really interested in the topic. But the main, the main thing we have to be able to do is promote competition, right? Like the one thing you hate to see in NFL is a team tanking. Because if a team tanks, it's like, oh, that team's going to suck. Their goal is to actually lose the game. In England, if your team loses the most games in the league, you're not in that league anymore. You get demoted. You get relegated to a lower league. That'd be like that'd be like the Cleveland Browns for the last 10 years, ending up being with like Georgia and Florida and the SEC and Alabama going up and playing in the NFL. Like that's how it works over there. Truly a reward system for those teams that actually put forth the effort and have management behind them. So until we do that in the US, it's never going to get to the level that the European players have. That, oh my gosh, we could probably talk for an hour on that. I am so glad you said that. And I would love for everybody, I'm going to sniff this out and put it on social media because that is such a big piece. That's how Brazil was, dude. And that's why it got wild, dude. There was like fights breaking out because there were certain games literally by the end of the season that ironically enough would end up being between like the two lower tier teams. Winner goes, stays, yep. you know, and the other one gets relegated. Like it's wild. And then the, and the same concept for those lower tiers that make it up. And they're, they're fighting for that top spot. And I'm not joking. There'd be like riots in the streets. And I'm that's why oh, yeah. when I say that people were praying at their dinner table about their teams, because I lived in a city that was very small in Brazil. And uh, yeah, like, I mean, they had a team that was, it was in Santa Catarina that was trying to, ironically, if anyone's ever seen or heard the story a couple of years back, there was a plane wreck um, of a, a team in Brazil. That was actually the city I lived in. So anyway, that team was trying to make it up to a higher division and all this stuff in Brazil. And it was wild, man. It, it like, actually, it's crazy. And I, I wish people knew more about that system because it, it it gets fun. While it's crazy, it's also very fun. But those those lower tier teams, they make more money in the bigger the bigger uh, divisions or whatever you want to call it, conference, if you will. Yep. Just tiers. That is a that's so good. Okay, we could talk about that forever, man. So as we're as we're transitioning, I hope everybody listened and learned from the soccer conversation right now. That soccer piece of this with Addison, and as you know by now, Addison is from the South. Okay, he's talking you can hear his accent he already told you where he's from and we're gonna be talking about some sec culture so he and i have had some conversations last year in person i think he's hilarious that's why it's funny because he and i agree on a lot of things he hates ohio state though and so like that's my school as everybody knows them the boise buckeyes what they call me so like i love ohio state i root for them i don't particularly like the sec but i do root for certain schools there i'm not like a total hater but i do believe they're top heavy yada 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 this is the, it's a whole discussion for another day but what i really want to know is from somebody who's grown up in that culture what it's really like i'm over here in idaho 
And I always tell people, Addison, I'm like, listen, I love my Boise State Broncos. I'm a Boise State alum. Got my bachelor's from there. Love them. But they always, oh, Bronco Nation, we can compete. <laughs> when I went to Ohio State versus Oklahoma at the shoe 2017 when Baker planted the flag in our, in our field, when I was mm. at that game, that was the first experience that I had in the shoe with a major game with both fan bases. It was at that game. Seriously, after that game, Madison, I no longer, that was the last year I ever had season tickets at Boise State. I had them for seven straight years. I never got them again because I went to the Boise State versus Troy game the exact week following. And it was like a high school, like junior college, whatever you want to call it. Like it was just such a boring game. Everything was slower. The atmosphere was not what I used. To, I was like, it's, it's, it was just different. So I know that there's bigger levels. There are levels to, to athletics. I want to talk about the SEC culture. So growing up, what school did you guys cheer for uh, being from, you know, Mississippi? Like, what school are you guys cheering for? And talk to us about game days on Saturday. Okay, so this is going to come off very strange, Shane. But so I'm from a town it's called Starkville, Mississippi. The only thing that we're known for is, well, we have a really good dairy that puts out really good cheese on campus. But it's Mississippi State, right? Mike Leach, where he's at now. And um, so I grew up going to those games. Uh when my dad still lived in Mississippi, we would get season tickets because he was a professor. We got great seats. Oh, Team sucked. We got absolutely ma like massacred. I'll never forget the one year we had homecoming. We lost to Maine, an FCS school. They came down and beat us wow. 10 to 7. And it was um, that was when we had Sylvester Kroom, who, as you probably know, is the first African-American coach of the SEC. And we, everyone was hoping he would do really well. And, man, we just sucked. It was awful. So, um the, the dynamic of it in Mississippi, and this is kind of a constant theme throughout SEC and rivalries, is in Mississippi, there's the state school, which is Mississippi State, heavily dominating in vet ag programs. We used to be Mississippi A&M, so we were just an ag school. And there was the University of Mississippi, which is Ole Miss, which actually I went to for law school. And Ole Miss had the doctor's program. They had University of Mississippi Medical Center. They had the, um, the law school. They had the farm school. So like they were more of the professional school and really looked down on the people who cheer for Mississippi State, you know, hillbillies, hicks and country folk that had no teeth. Right. And so that that's the dynamic you have at play in a lot of these rivalries is there's a big flagship state institution like Ole Miss that for for some reasons um, thinks that they're better than the other school like and by attending that school, they are of higher status than the other people who attend the other school. And it's it's such a strange dynamic. And I know you're a Buckeyes fan, so I really wish you weren't a fan of like the only other team that like I do have respect for outside of the SEC <laughs> other than Clemson. Um, because Ohio State and Clemson are really the only two that I think could play an SEC schedule and come out and potentially make a playoff. Like that's just straight up how it is. Ohio State more than even Clemson right now, but in the SEC, you grow up and you've got your team. I'm a hybrid. I grew up in Starkville going to all the games. When I went to law school at Ole Miss, I did cheer for Ole Miss and State consecutively. Anybody who has ever listened to your podcast that is a fan of either team is going to say, I'm not real. I'm not a fan because I support the other team that everyone else hates. I got that a lot. Um, you know, it's, I got love for my teams when they play each other, it's maroon and white and cowbells, and you're not gonna be able to hear anything. So I'm gonna ring it in your ear the whole game. But when the teams aren't playing each other, man, you know, it's, it's good for the state. It's good for both schools and it's good for the sec. I mean, you hear it like here, it just means more. 
And it's like having like a younger brother, right? Like you can beat up your younger brother, but if someone else hits your younger brother, like all of y'all are going to jump that person, right? And that's how the SEC is. And that's what makes it the best conference in the nation. Oh my gosh, dude. I'm like, <laughs> I'm laughing at this whole thing because you're talking about kettlebells ringing and stuff. Dude, it's wild because that's just like a normal thing for y'all. But like yeah. for us over here, we were at the, you can ask a couple of my friends that were at the the Boise State Nevada game, 2010 Black Friday, where my friend Kyle Brotsman, whom is had I've had him on the show, misses a field goal. So when Colin Kaepernick, Boise State was potentially going to make it. I mean, they were arguably going to make it to a national championship that year, but probably not. They were going to go to the Rose Bowl. They miss a field goal. It was the miss, the infamous missed field goal. We lost to Kaepernick in Nevada. We were there in Reno. Yep. You know, terrible situation. But I remember there's a dude, this freaking Nevada fan, missing teeth, ringing his cowbell behind us. And I like, I mean, there, there were like 20 fights that broke out. And that night, man, the things that went through my head, I was like, stop ringing the cowbell in my freaking face, dude. I'm about <laughs> to bust your teeth in the back of your throat. So like, you didn't have any, so. It's kind of hard to say that, but it's just, it was wild, man. So it's funny to hear the cowbell situation. Okay. So, okay. Mississippi, this is what I'm saying. When I, when I say that the SEC is top heavy, understand this with, with respect. Okay. No, of course. Because you have levels to, to there's elite, there, there's good, great, and elite. There's also trash in college football, but there's good, great, and elite. There's a handful of great teams, but every year there seems to be maybe, one if not two elite teams and you're lucky to get three elite teams because even in the college football playoff typically speaking there's some blowouts that happen consistently yep. there are some times where i think there might be three teams in that playoff that could truly compete for a championship depending on the matchup but like you got the bamas sometimes georgia like this lot you got them in there but like they're not always on that elite system that in my opinion like that elite tier even ohio state there's years where i'm like man they're a great team but they're not elite, but there was a year they were elite. They lost to Clemson in the college football playoff. That was that was brutal for Justin Fields. But this is why I say I think they're top heavy because you have those top just because you have the top teams in the country, like maybe the top team that's a national champion, doesn't mean it's the best conference. There's differences between best teams and best conferences. But I want your thoughts on that opinion that I have. Uh, look, you're 100 percent right. There's instances, and each conference has elite teams, like elite for the conference, even like. For example, the ACC has Clemson. Beyond that, you've got a big gap, right? At least right now. It used to be that Miami, Florida State, Clemson, Vatech, like all those teams were like pushing that elite status. And any in any single year, like I remember the 01, 02 Hurricanes, like those boys were bad. Like I loved watching them growing up. Even in the, you know, you're talking Big Ten, you've got you've got the Buckeyes, Michigan as of late, whatever. I don't I don't rate them as a good team, but you know, right. good for the Big Ten, right? Um, but for the SEC, here's here's where it breaks down for me, right? You've got the cellar dwellers, you know, that's that's Vandy. Like Vandy's the cellar dweller of the SEC in football, and they're just they're set up where they kind of have to be as a private institution and having um some of the outlay that they have. Like it's just more difficult. It's hard to recruit kids to go to Vandy. Nonetheless, without making excuses, then you've got like the ones that live in the basement, not even in the cellar. So you've got like the Mississippi states, Arkansas previously, they really moved up in the world, um, saw that they were top 25 this year. But you're talking about like, look at, okay, let's just look at the West, like the SEC West. Okay. So you've got Bama, who's competing for a national championship every single year. Auburn, who until probably like three years ago was almost on that same tier. Like they have Bama's number. They keep Bama out of national championships purely because they hate each other like Mississippi State and Ole Miss. You've got Texas A&M, who's revitalized under Jimbo Fisher. 
Like that's three real contenders. You're putting in Arkansas now who has, um, who's starting out in the top 25 and actually looks good under Sam Pittman. Fifth, you're talking maybe Ole Miss, like Ole Miss with Lane Kiffin who went nine and three last year. Like those boys are explosive. Mississippi State who under Mike Leach is going to lose games they should win and win games they should lose. I mean, you've got conferences that anyone can truly beat anyone. And that's what the SEC is. You're not talking about that with some of the people who are toward the bottom in the Big Ten. Like, are we talking Rutgers? Like, is Rutgers ever going to come out and, like, put it on Penn State or put it on Michigan? No, Rutgers would be your Vandy. I'm going to say that. But Rutgers, well, let's compare them. We'll go across. Okay. Rutgers would be your Vandy. But I agree with you. Like, I'm not disagreeing yeah. with this statement about – I think there's elite teams in each conference that can compete. But – and then there's some bottom dwellers there. But, okay, go ahead. Rutgers, go ahead. Yeah. So I'm just the point of the SEC being more is that there's more teams that are going to be competitive day in and day out. Like it doesn't matter if Mississippi State is three and seven when Bama comes to town, like they're going to give Bama a run almost every single year. And we're talking Bama, who's with the elite of the elite. I'm not sure you can say that for some of the. All right, let's let's downgrade it back to like a Nebraska or something, right? Like Nebraska, for example, like if Ohio State comes to town and it's the Nebraska's of Scott Frost going like three and seven. Like, are they going to give him a run? Probably not. Like they just haven't. And they're not going to Wisconsin's an animal. Like they, they, their rushing attack and defense is just, you never know. Plus the, the big issue that the sec seems to be able to get away from is, is the fact that the sec is going to have the weather to support, to show which team is better. Right. So you, you get day in and day out, you get the same team strategy for most games. If you are playing at Michigan in November, right, and you're Ohio State and you're a pass-heavy team, like that's going to cause issues when you get flurries. But when you come to the South, you get everyone's best game every single time when you're in the SEC, when you're playing against Bama. I'm not saying Ohio State doesn't, but you just got four of those teams on your schedule that could be in that national championship talk, and other conferences don't have that. The Pac-12 is getting their two best teams, most historic teams, getting poached out now. But the SEC is not rushing to expand because we have the best. And the two teams from the Big 12 that we thought were like maybe cream of the crop, Texas, legendary program, the most supported program in the nation, them in Ohio State, and we're pulling them in. OU, who's had the big coaching change, we'll see how that goes, but we're bringing them in too. I mean, we're not having to fish out for other other schools like a USC who's been downtrodden, who I think is going to have a really good rebound, honestly. I do. I think Lincoln Riley will do really well, but – and a UCLA under Chip Kelly, uh, they're going to suck. But the SEC has – they have that level of competition that unless you're playing a Vandy, you're really not going to get bad teams. Even Kentucky, who used to be a cellar dweller of the SEC, all these teams are starting to lift up. In years past, it wasn't about the budget of the teams like because you had that gap. But now all these teams are throwing money into their coaches, their programs. you got NIL coming into play. And so the rich are just going to keep getting richer. And the SEC has got the big contract. What, last year they shelled out like $55 million to each member institution. So Bama and Vandy are basically getting the same there. Like that's, that's a huge thing to lift the whole conference that, frankly, no other conference is going to have. It's wild that you just brought those things up because I'm smiling. The, the conversation about weather, I've made that argument, Addison, but not for the same exact point that you made. Now, that's a very interesting point you made. I did, I've brought up that exact same argument about how the SEC doesn't have to worry about weather. And so that helps them with building their teams and the speed that they have. Everyone talks about the speed of the SEC. And I said, you know, Ohio State has speed 
to compete with the SEC, but the rest of the Big Ten is built for November football. Um, they really are, and that's why. And you saw Ohio State get manhandled by Bama a few years back in the in the trenches. That's really it's it was in the trenches, and then it started on the speed on the, the linebackers couldn't keep up with any of your receivers, not yours, but the SEC receivers. And then Oregon, I mean, smacked us in the mouth last year. Started in the trenches because we're not built. We're built for the speed part of it. Um, and Ohio, and you mentioned the Michigan game. That's exactly what happened last year. We got manhandled in the yeah. trenches. We had speed to beat Michigan. We could blow them completely out of the water if we were in a in a neutral weather game. It was it was totally fine. But we're not built that way. We're trying to build ourselves to compete for national championships because national championships are played in good weather, and that's kind of what it is. And we're playing big schools from the SEC. But I didn't even think about it to your point, which I actually agree with. The good weather concept you get the best out of every team every week. You're getting 100% everything. It's not going to be neutralized by some sort of weather. You know, um, you're not going to see these upsets because it's snowing six inches and it's a yeah. it's a three nothing ball game. You're not going to see that. I mean, we have seen three nothings and six three games between LSU and the old Alabamas and whatnot. But you know what I mean? It's it's a little different situation. So that's actually a really interesting point. Which as much as I dislike the sec i will agree with your point there because it's a very good point now i want to take usc ucla going to the big 10 okay first off don't call it poaching but if, if we're going to call it poaching okay we grabbed them because that's going to help us with the recruiting on the la market we needed the california market to recruit we don't really have them in california outside of florida and some of the southern schools do have some of the best athletes you know texas california florida typically the best athletes in the country that's why I'm happy that we grabbed them. Plus the money situation. You get the LA markets out of the Pac-12. Well, they just lost their entire rev stream. But then the Big Ten can pull in from the LA markets, which even when they suck, they're pulling in millions and millions of dollars. And that helps the conference. And I'm excited about it. So you know what? You call it poaching, whatever it is. I'm just not saying they're the best teams in the world, but it will be good for the branding. But one one question, Shane. So the, the question is, how does that impact the student athlete, right? Think about the Rutgers kid that's going to have to make that flight and play in LA for like just even for non-revenue sports, right? Like take soccer, for example. Like what does that do to the student athletes who have to make that cross-country journey and play those two teams and come back? Like that's that's a huge disruption to not only schoolwork, but just like a sleep cycle and really being able to like function as as, as a person because we'll go back to the regulation piece and I don't, I don't want to detract back to the soccer piece, but you are mandated one day off as any, when you're in season, right? You're mandated one day off outside of like bowl and playoff stuff. And if you're traveling one day there and one day back, that's two days right there that you're not really being able to train. Plus you've got game days. Let's just say that's three. So a Rutgers kid, let's just say that it's a soccer player that goes over like a female soccer player from Rutgers that goes over and plays against UCLA one night. So their team travels on Thursday. They stay there the night before, which is really common sometimes to stay on Friday. And you're probably doing a team stretch and stuff. That's not a day off. And then you got the game on Saturday and fly back on Sunday. I mean, that's that's putting a lot of miles on those wheels. Plus, it's doing a disservice to the student athlete because without that regional proximity, you're really stretching athletic budgets, which isn't huge. But for non-revenue sports, that's a big deal. And then also it's the development of the student athlete. So I talked a lot about like the mindset piece and being able to like do more on the side and like that exists, but it's a lot harder to do it when you're on the road, making these long journeys. And the SEC's done it intentionally where I think that they're able to keep that footprint a little bit tighter. Now I understand you're going to have a similar situation when you have Columbia, South Carolina, the Gamecocks traveling over to play Texas and Austin, right? Like that's a half country trip still, but it's still not that New Jersey to LA trip. So you, 
there's a factor in there that I think is, it's a little bit, you know, it's hard to put student athletes in that situation, but again, it just kind of improves why the sec is so awesome. I'll respect that. I will respect that because as a Boise state guy, myself, that is the big argument for Boise state trying to join bigger conferences because yep. the non-revenue sports, which outside of football there, it's everything. Cause we don't make money. Everything mm-hmm. Boise state doesn't make money off the other sports. And so that's a big, I mean, and they don't even realize like our fan base, that's how stupid we are. Sometimes I should just say ignorant because they just don't know, but they don't yeah. choose to try to know. Like, it's like, sorry. And that's why I call it stupid. Cause it's like, yeah, you might not know it, but like there's information out there. You, it should be, I mean, you should know that like, it's not going to just, it's not free. We're barely making it as it is with our football revenue coming in and trying to pay off everybody over here. You think your basketball team is going to go fly over to the big 12 conference every, every, every week. You know, it doesn't work that way. Uh, there's right. a lot of money that's, that goes into that. Um, so I get that. I respect that. I will sit on that for a little while and, and think about it because I'm wondering if like they will make some NIL has changed a lot of things. I think yeah. with, with a lot of stuff and I New Jersey's got some money flowing through that town, you know, like that whole entire it's the state, everything in that area. So maybe Rutgers has some cash flow coming in somewhere. I don't know. Maybe a, a booster has some money. What's up? What, what do you yeah. got now from so, a lawyer's perspective? No, no, no. I'll try to make it a quick point. It's on the NIL discussion. You go back and you talk about like, all right, so who are these boosters that are wanting to throw like oogles of money into players, right? Like when I was when I was in college, there was a big ordeal about Dan Mullen basically ratting out um, some Ole Miss for recruiting violations, right? Like Hugh Freeze and his ultimate downfall. Like that's what happened. Dan Mullen, opposite coach, ratted him out, contributed to this hatred. But it was because boosters showed up and gave sacks full of cash to recruits, like 10 grand. And so like you had this happening and the question goes like, why is this happening? And think about the schools and where they're located in the SEC. You've got two schools in Mississippi. You know how many pro teams are in Mississippi of any sport whatsoever? Zero. Think about Alabama. You've got two massive schools. We're talking Alabama and Auburn who have $100 million athletic budgets. And a lot of it goes toward football. How many pro sports do we have here? Not counting like minor league baseball because I love my Barons, but and Rocket City Trash Pandas. Um, but really we have zero and like we have a semi or we have a second tier professional soccer team, but like big professional sports, like we have zero. And so what these people focus all their time, energy, and now money on is getting these athletes paid so that their alma mater or just the team that's closest to them can go out and beat that team. That's, you know, a three hour drive away because they went to the better institution and they want to stick it to that state institution that they're better than. So you've got the boosters given just obscene amounts of cash because we don't have the professional sports in the South that you might have. Someone in Columbus, right? Like a a big booster or something that went to Ohio State. Sure, but they might also be like a Cleveland Browns fan. They might be a Cincinnati Bengals fan. They might be a Cleveland Guardians fan. Like y'all got options to go up there and look at sports. In the South, like, you're rooting for that team and like you're excited for that team. That's why Starkville's town of 25,000 has a stadium of about 65,000 because everyone goes there and it's a party and they pack out more people than even exist in the city by double just in one stadium for a day. Like that's, that's what makes the sec cool. And that's what really drives this extra emotion that you don't really see in other conferences from the sec perspective. That's pretty dope. That is pretty dope. I I will give you that. And it's a great point that most people, and you're going to say, oh, the 
stupid fans like Shane, the casuals or something. I'm not a casual, but I you you dissect it to a to a level that actually people should probably be looking at. So I guess I'll ask you this last question here. Sure. NIL, good or bad for college athletics it, overall? You've made some great points about a lot of different things. Is it good or bad? Especially unless, and we can say for overall for college athletics, but then let's also say for the SEC because, like you said, there's different regions and different there's different little subtleties, I guess you could say like what you just mentioned about the cities themselves. Like it's different than even in Columbus, Ohio with Ohio state with all the surrounding professional athletics. So just what are your thoughts on that? And I has got, it's got, there's going to be two sides of that sword, right? Like the players sh- that are bringing in revenue should be able to be compensated because their value is higher. It's it, if it's a truly capitalist system, like we should be in America, those who have the most or acquire the most merit should be paid or at least compensated in a different form, right? Like, is it fair that the kicker on Alabama's football team, if they're on a full ride, is getting the same kind of money that Jalen Hurts was when he was there? Like, probably not, because people are really going to see Jalen Hurts. They want to buy that Jalen Hurts jersey. So it's great to see that the individual college athlete is able to profit off that. Where it gets ugly is you get situations where you're not that NIL money is not meant to entice players to transfer or go to a certain school, right? Like you can't promise that money. We know it happens. And what it does with college athletics and the student athletes in particular is create a mind shift where it starts to, I don't say, I'm not going to say that, you know, room and board and and scholarship is, is everything that a student athlete needs. Cause it's not like you've got a lot of expenses, but it changes the student athlete's perspective and even calling them student athlete kind of starts to sound like a joke at some point. Right. Like, I don't want to say that because as being one, like I knew the importance we had study hall, our coach preached it, but at the end of the day, like what the quarterback at Miami made a million dollars before he even started a game and he got benched. Like that's, that's the issues that we're running into. Like you start promoting your image and you forget about that mentality, that mindset that we talked about just to segue back to it that mindset still has to be there. So it takes an emotionally mature person to be able to take on that kind of money and still have that same kind of desire and drive. So I think it's a benefit that all these student athletes, at least the revenue ones are able to get this kind of money. And this is a very small percentage of student athletes. Let me put this out there. Like non-revenue sports, men's soccer, you're not seeing a dime. Um, A lot of like the, the tier sports that aren't making money, like they're not, they're not getting this awesome benefit unless they've got a big Instagram following or like a TikTok account. Like that's just what it is. But the student athletes that are being compensated in this way, if they can keep that same mentality and hunger as they get the NIL money, then there's a net benefit on both sides of that sword. But it's for those that maybe aren't prepared. I don't know Derek King, obviously, but he got a great deal from that Miami gym fitness guy. And then his performance started to tank. And I hate to see that for players with that much potential, but I think you're going to start to see more of that along the way. And you're going to see instances where maybe even a big booster has given a lot of money to a guy for NIL and has ties with that university. And there's pressure on that coach to keep that guy on the field. And that's what's going to start sucking about college football. If that kind of outside influence has an impact on the game. That is so interesting. And I'm sure there's a ton of stuff that we could talk about, but even Quinn Ewers, Ohio state, like if, if anybody remembers the, the conversation there leaves his high school a year early and, 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 you know, enrolls at Ohio state, he had enough credits to be able to do that. So he was able to graduate early, get to Ohio state so that he could lock in a seven figure deal. Didn't even see the field of course, cause he was a, a freshman. So it's like, what he didn't even see the field. And now he transfers over to Texas and he's going to do his thing, but he was, 
you know, he's doing it to cash in. In some instances, I say, great, if you can cash in, do it. You never know if you're going to tear your ACL and you're done for your career. Who knows? But there are, like, I think there, yeah, it's a double-edged sword here. There's a lot of things that go into it. Now, I lied this last question because now we're on a podcast. As a sports fan yourself, you know, especially in the SEC, you're out there, but you you love sports. You you know them. That's like your passion. One of your passions that helps drive you as far as like just conversations outside of your, your full-time job and so forth. A podcast. I always say this, Addison. I'm like, dude, I would love to see some of these athletes in college start a podcast. Like do a podcast that's once a week or twice a week or something and just talk about your day of, as a student athlete and let us know what's going on in the week and talk about the games that you guys had. We're seeing more of that in the NBA. You start seeing Draymond Green, J.J. Redick, and a lot of these professional athletes starting to do this media stuff, and I actually love it. I don't know. I personally love it. Would you like to see that? And Or if not, is there something you would like to see these athletes do? Even these non-revenue – like if you're a men's soccer player, why not start a podcast and talk about it? Because there's plenty of people who want to play soccer that are male. Like maybe they could relate to you. I don't know. But like is there something you would like to see, and what do you think about the podcast idea? So let me, I'll take it in two parts. So first, if I'm a coach, that's like the biggest fear in the world, right? That your players <laughs> start a podcast. Like that That has to be like number one or number two on the list. Um, we all go through media training, but some of that doesn't stick for some players. And that's just how it is, right? So that that creates nerves. But from, from like the consumer perspective of someone that really loves like watching the SEC and hearing about the SEC, um, I would be interested to hear a player's perspective who's in there. But the again, that kind of pulls back to the the whole the whole point of the mentality, right? Like if you've got a player who starts focusing more on their podcast than breaking down game film or looking at the game plan or you know doing film study, like that's where it starts to cut in. You just got to be able to have that one person who is mentally and emotionally mature enough to do it, but I'd love to hear it. I'd love to hear what Bryce Young thinks about breaking down Auburn's secondary, you know, after the game, something like that. Like it would be so cool to hear that kind of stuff. That's so funny. It's such an interesting concept. You know what I mean? It's just such an, I love it. I love that you mentioned the coaches. I love that you mentioned that because like that stuff that people don't think about. You're, you're spot on, dude. This is why I love chatting with them. I wish we could chat more. We probably will. I'll probably see Addison here in a little while. We, We'll, we'll connect again. That's all I'll say. We'll connect again. We'll chat it up. Uh, but Addison, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for joining the show and being willing to share your story about soccer as well as talking about the SEC. And uh, we'll see when the Buckeyes beat Bama in the championship this year. We'll have a good conversation and I'll uh, I'll get you an Uber Eats gift card that you guys can celebrate with <laughs> alongside. Hater, uh, that's all right, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate you, brother. And uh, for those who are listening, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Make sure you give me a a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps get this out to more people, and we'll be coming to you next week with another one. Take care. Guys, thanks so much for listening to another episode of my show. Now, if you could go and do me a favor, head over to iTunes, give me five stars, and leave me a review. It would be greatly appreciated. Thanks, guys. Appreciate your support.